and I fell under the barricade. My head was like right by the barricade. So I just grabbed the barricades and I started to pull myself under. And as I did it, he mm. stood again and he gored me under the knee. And he looked at me right in the eyes. And huh. he went like, <sighs> like they make these noises like that. Yeah. And when he did it, I could feel his horn like resonating in my leg, like, like vibrating <laughs> my leg. And he could have drug me out. He could have drug me right back out, thrown me around, gored me, maybe killed me. But uh, he, he just, like in one instant, he just decided to let me live. He just, just, he just vanished. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. Our guest this week is Bill Hillman. He is a former Golden Gloves champion from Chicago, wrote the novel The Old Neighborhood in 2014, and then a non-fiction book the following year called Mozos, A Decade Running with the Bulls, which was translated in Spain the following year as Corriendo con Hemingway. Hillman probably is the most famous bull runner in the world. I first met him in 2015 in Pamplona, where I was trying to kind of infiltrate the, the people who inherited the baton that Hemingway was passing from The Sun Also Rises, a very interesting, strange, eccentric group. And Hillman, in passing, just showed up at a table where I was interviewing people, and I got his backstory. And he is amazing. <laughs> and, uh, I was really intrigued to have him on the show. So quite a story. He went to St. Joseph High School, which is most famous for being the school where the two subjects of Hoop Dreams are. And by the way, we're going to have Steve James on pretty soon to discuss that film and, and many others that he's working on. But uh, Bill Hillman is very, very interesting character. I hope you enjoy him half as much as I did. Bill Hillman. got such an interesting intersection with the, the bull running and the boxing background on top of that. And, and of course, you've covered boxing a fair bit as well. But I guess maybe we should start with where kind of boxing entered your life growing up in Chicago, uh, getting into the amateurs, fighting in the Golden Gloves, all that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I growing up in Chicago, you know, the, there was a lot of street fighting. You know, my dad was a big street fighter. Was had a great knockout punch uh, in the street and uh, was really well known around the, the area as a tough guy. And so all my brothers and me, we all wanted to be like that. And uh, so we started, you know, we would all street fight. You know, we had, you know, there's a lot of a lot of that going on in the city. And uh, we'd even have like a lot of times the older kids would make the younger kids fight each other, like in bare knuckle fights. Wow. So like 30, 30 minute bare knuckle fights. So we were always doing that kind of stuff and enjoying that and uh so I didn't really, but I didn't really start boxing until uh, I got to St. Joseph High School, um, mm. where there was a Christian. There was a Christian brother named Brother Peter, and he, uh, you know, he he had trained a few Golden Glove champions, and he was a Park District champion himself. And uh, you know, he, I heard him boxing one day, and I said, "Man, I want to try that." And uh, a guy named Dennis Hughes, who was a Golden Glove champion, so he gave me, a, you know, a, put in a word for me, and then uh, I had a had my first session with Brother Peter. And he was rough, man. He was tough. He the first thing he did was punch you in the mouth when when you got you got the gloves on with him. Punch you right in the mouth, and see what you did. And uh, so you know, I, I punched back, and uh, 
never turned back. You know, we just kept training together, and he he built he built me up pretty well. Then I started going to the looking for sparring in the park districts in Chicago, and uh, heading over to the Windy City Gym, mm-hmm. and uh, for sparring and things like that. And it just I just never turned back. You know, I just kept kept uh, kept developing and fighting. And this St. Joe's, this is the same St. Joe's that was made famous. The first time I heard about it was Hoop Dreams with Arthur That's Agee right. and William Gates. Were the same kind of people there? I know that they're a little older than, than us. I'm a little older than you by a few years. But I think Gates and Agee are, what, two, three years older than us? Than, than me, rather? Yeah, yeah. They came through, uh, I want to say, like, early 90s, late 80s. And, uh, and I got there in, like, 96, I think. And so, uh, but you know, I, I, you know, I, I tried to play basketball at St. Joe's. It was, it was huh. a rude awakening. Uh, the team, my year, uh, 99, uh, they were probably the best team that St. Joe's ever had. Um, they didn't have, wow. they didn't have the kind of like outrageous talent of like Isaiah Thomas or, or the guys from Hoop Dreams. Yep. And actually the year before them had, had more talent, like in terms of like individual talent, mm-hmm. but this team was uh was a sensational man they just they they worked as a unit uh they were they were like eight deep they were all really really awesome guys would come off the bench and and really contribute and they won the state title and they went undefeated that year wow so so pretty much it's you know i i i got i caught the drift right away that i would be like eighth string on the team (laughs) so i so i kind of gave up right away but uh they were there was the basketball was really strong there i mean they King Ator just passed away. He was the, he was the coach for you know 30, 40 years, and uh, he was the institution. And uh, but uh, but yeah, it was an interesting place to, to, to go to high school for sure. Oh, I mean the depiction. I was going to ask you about Pink because I I wasn't sure what happened to him since Hoop Dreams, which was kind of controversial. The depiction of him and how the different treatment of Ag versus Gates Gates became a lot more promising as a basketball player than Ag was. Gates mm. was kind of thrown out, had a massive debt in order to get, I think, his academic records and that kind of thing. It looked pretty sketchy how they were treating people, especially at a renowned religious institution. It didn't seem terribly in keeping <laughs> with, like, uh, I don't know, an empathetic um, way of dealing with the AG situation. So it sounded pretty strict. I'll put it this way. Uh, I played football at St. Joe's. We didn't have a very good team, but we, you know, we, we went on this big uh, donation drive. We spent like a month on it. We raised like uh, $10,000 for like equipment. Mm-hmm. And when we finished that, we hit our goals. Our coach was real happy. Ping came in and took it all and put wow. it towards, towards, towards uh, a, a new floor for the, for the, for the basketball gym. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, he, you know, it, it, he was he was just a powerhouse, you know. You couldn't you couldn't you couldn't do anything. Ping was just he was he was in control of that school in a lot of ways, and uh, you know. But at the same time, the school was great, you know. Uh, Brother Peter was also an institution, so hmm. he you know he he was he was super strict, you know. What one time I mean he was hilarious to, to be first. He was a great teacher. He was a, he was a history teacher, and uh, he was he was hilarious as a teacher. Really intense. Was one of them is one of the most well read people on the Civil War you'll ever meet. And, uh, but he, uh, he, if you, if you mess, if you like stood up to him, like kind of like, like got, got conversation with him, he would, he would like pick you and your desk up and throw you out in the room. Oh, like there was no, there was no, uh, talking back to brother Peter. 
But uh, it was great. It was great for me. I mean, I was a troubled kid, so it was a perfect thing for me. It really straightened me out, got me out of trouble, and uh, and changed my life for the, for the better for sure. And then, and then amateur boxing. You're you're going into Chicago to train at, at some pretty famous gyms over there. Um, what's it like to to work your way towards winning the Golden Gloves? Like, what was that journey like? It was great. You know, it was it was it was. Uh, you know, I didn't know. You know, it's hard. You never really know what you're made of. You think you can box, you know, you just do good in sparring. And then when you first get in that ring, it's like, is this, this is for real now. And, and you worry you're going to get knocked out or something. And, and, you know, you get embarrassed. So yeah. that was that was a big, uh, intense thing for me. The first time I got caught with a big punch in, in, in a fight, when the crowd reacts, they cheer against you. You know, it's like, whoa, yeah. like, you know, it's, it's a real emotional journey. And uh, so, but I, I did real well. I was I was lucky. You know, I, I won my first uh like seven fights and then, you know, started to, to up the competition started winning and losing. And, you know, they, you know, one time they put me in there with a guy that was an open class fighter and he was like 30 years old. Hmm. And uh, I didn't know, we didn't know because we, we weren't as connected as like a lot of the other people were. So they would, they would, you know, they would trick people into, into getting, getting them to fight them. So I took this fight, went toe to toe with this guy and, uh, and later on, found out that he was 30 and open fighter. And uh, so that was that that built my confidence a lot. But, uh, you know, still my first time in the Golden Gloves, uh, they had a guy named Danny Baez who who was from Puerto Rico and he had just moved to the city. And uh, it turns out that he he had a lot of fights in Puerto Rico that they didn't tell us about. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was he was sensational. Like, you know, it was, he was I'll put it this way. A month after he beat me, he he beat the number three guy in the nation in the United States in a, in wow. a, just a solid win, like a like a solid. Uh, I saw the I was there for the fight. He just beat the guy, and uh, but it, at fighting guys like me who only had you know eight, eight fights and nine fights, uh, you know he was knocking us out. He was knocking guys like us out cold. So uh, I got in there with him and he just lit me up and I just went into survival mode and just tried to bang with him and I caught him and. And the fight went, you know, it kind of got bonkers for a while. I almost got stopped, but I, I survived. But, uh, but yeah, so that was my first taste of the Gold Gloves. And so it was kind of a bad, a bad taste in my mouth because this guy was just so good. You know, he was way, he should not have been in the novice, you know. Sure. So that was, that was rough. But, uh, you know, I came back and uh, I got, I also was, I was pretty young. I was just 16. He was like 20. Wow. Um, so, you know, I was, I was still developing. I was still getting, you know, coming into my, you know, prime, you know, physically you know so I, I was still developing as i got older i got heavier and uh i i went up i when i was fighting that first time i fought like 140 and i started playing football in college and i got bigger i got up to like 200 wow and i started fighting yeah so so i fought at like 200 and under um wow. the next time huh. i fought in the gloves and uh and at that point i was really strong and you know i had i had a lot of fights and so i i did better and i was i was able to to, to win a title the second time so you you won it at what weight class did you win that golden gloves 200 and under 200 and under God. it's like a it's like a cruiserweight you know it's a cruiser. yeah wow that's incredible so it, it strikes me that when i was researching you a little bit that we're going to make a strange jump for people who aren't familiar with your story to where bull running and Pamplona. I mean, everybody knows the running of the bulls now that's been popularized. For, I mean, now it's what a million people are descending on Pamplona annually for that event or something comparable to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Easily. Yeah. Incredible. 
But Hemingway was the big gateway drug for that for you, right? Like sure. reading The Sun Also Rises. But you're you're growing up kind of in his backwoods, uh, like his backyard rather, because uh, I'm not sure how far Oak Park really is outside of um, Chicago proper. Like it's it's actually borders the city, so it's actually it's, it's just right across Austin Avenue, and you're you're in uh, you're in Oak Park. So when when do you read The Sun Also Rises? Because there you've got some boxing. I think it starts off with his description of Robert Cohn being a boxer, a boxing champion at Princeton, and then we're off to Pamplona and all of that. Yeah. When when does that book find you? I was about, uh, I was like around 19 or 20, okay. and I was uh, I was in junior college and um, trying to get into a four-year school because I had a lot of trouble in high school. And, uh, you know, it was actually it was a junior college teacher uh, named... Uh, David McGrath that turned me on to Hemingway. My dad had been trying to get me to read him. My dad's a big outdoorsman. And, uh, but I finally did sit down and read him. And uh, I started writing like street fight stories and stuff like that, like crazy fight stories. But uh, I finally sat down and read, uh, read I picked The Sun Also Rises. I, I think it's because it was, his, it was his first novel. That's why I picked it. I was just like, look, I was at the library just looking through books, Hemingway books, and then uh, sat down and read it in one sitting. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I like totally felt connected to the characters. They're super interesting. Um, you know, all of it just just blew me away. And uh, it was such an engaging, like fun story, too. I mean, that, that's the thing is like I always thought of like formal literature as it had to be boring. You know, it right, had to be like because, right. you know, the stuff you read in high school, it's just hard to connect to because it's so old and things like that. So this one, it was just like, it was super fun read. Uh, I, I, I loved it. It was interesting, uh, fascinating world. And, and the fact that he, I knew he, he won a Nobel Prize, it just like blew me away that you could actually write fun literature and have it be, you know, Nobel Prize worthy literature. And uh, so that that just blew me away and made me want to go. Uh, you know, I, I, it was right around that time. I think it was somewhere around the time of the running of the Bulls because I, I saw like highlights of it on TV. And I was like, they still do that? You can right. still do that? And I couldn't believe that it still existed. So I was like, man, I got to go. I got to go experience this for myself. Huh. And did you, <clears throat> when you were thinking about what it would be, because I think you're right with Hemingway. I was really intrigued that a guy could somehow juggle being tremendously avant-garde. I mean, killing the Victorian era of literature with these simple declarative sentences, being avant-garde being popular and being critically acclaimed simultaneously. Yeah. I can't really think of many other writers who are able to encompass all three, you know, like that original, especially those first short stories in the, in our time collection. I mean, totally new breakthrough with the language and then massive popular success with the sun also rises with the first book out of the gates. Um, so I wonder like from there, what gets you to Spain? Like, how do you, you know, I, I remember too, like ab about your age, reading that book for the first time and thinking, I have to go to Pamplona. And I think I went right around my 19th birthday. And I thought they were basically doing the running of the bulls year round. They're not. It's like a very closed window. This is pre-internet, so you couldn't look stuff up as easily. But um, what's that experience for like for you to go there and see for yourself where Spain is, what bullfighting is about, to actually see it, and to, 
I, I'd love to hear what your first San Fermin was like in Pamplona. You know, it, it was it was a crazy trip because, uh, you know, my I happened to become friends with Irvin Welsh through boxing. Uh, Irvin huh. Welsh, the guy who wrote Train Spotting. Yeah, sure. He he was living he was living in Chicago at the time, and uh, he'd come to my fights and stuff. And we really bonded. He liked my riding. He, he encouraged my riding and started helping me. And uh, so he was getting married in Dublin uh, around June 30th or something. And I looked at all the He said, you, he, he told me, he demanded that I go to his wedding. So I, I started figuring <laughs> out how to go. And uh, so he, he was getting married right, uh, right before Fiesta. So I went out there. It was, it was insane from the get-go. I, I joined the Mile High Club with a French girl on the flight over. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> and then then uh get there i meet like all the characters from train spotting which was which was surreal like i met wow. like uh, sick boy and uh not all of them but like several of them and uh that was and i had a, a, like i became friends with them and, and like went out and got got girls with them so it, it was crazy then huh. uh, i get over to, to fiesta i get there late i get there late like uh around the eighth and um uh, end up uh you know, just getting lost in the city and drunk. And uh, I had I had some money left. I was running out of money already because it was my first time in Europe. I had no idea what it was going to cost. And uh, I remember uh, just, just getting really drunk, getting lost, meeting some, some American kid that was living there. And he started, like, telling me how to what to do and where to be and stuff. So, so I ended up going with him to the course the next morning. And... Uh, I just remember the city being just breathtakingly beautiful and like the yeah. women, the women being outrageous. Like they look like their skin looked like it was like a doll, like, like porcelain, perfect, like, like skin, like, and just outrageously beautiful. Some of them were like giving me the time of day too, which was ridiculous <laughs> and like taking me around. And then, then, uh, I end up, uh, like passing out. I was going to try to run, but then I passed out right before the run and I'm sleeping. Then all of a sudden I hear the, bulls go go by and i try to run and jump into the course and i climb up on the barricades i got my hands like this and a female officer takes her nightclub and with all her might hits the barricade like an inch from my hand and wow. i just like froze and just like slowly <laughs> climbed down i was like i guess i'm not supposed to do that wow. and, uh, huh. then i then i got pickpocketed i lost all my money uh randomly this like group of like uh spanish a couple spanish dudes and and one of their girlfriends like like started talking to me in in plaza de castillo and like befriended me and then they they took me all around like got me drunk again got me high we went to all these parties and like uh concerts and stuff and i wake up the next day in a car sailing through the pyrenees like the most beautiful drive i've ever been on and it's 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 between pamplona and san sebastian and uh and they're taking me to San Sebastian. We get to San Sebastian, we go to the beach, and I realize, like, they're going to try to help me, like, bring me to Madrid with them and, like, make sure I don't, like, starve um, until my flight leaves. And I'm like, no, 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 I got to go back to Pamplona. So I get some money wired to me from my family. I go back to Pamplona, and I, and I get, I try to run with the bulls. And uh, I, of course, did everything wrong because I didn't know what I was doing. So I ended up uh, standing on Estafeta, and of course, the police clear half the course to get rid of, you know, the people don't know what they're doing. So the police pushed us off the course. And I'm thinking, like, I can't believe this. I'm not, I'm not going to run with the Bulls again. And I start running around frantically. 
people are pointing, trying to help me. I get over to town hall and people are trying to sneak in and the police are, are like beating them and throwing them back off. Well, I'm waiting on the barricades that I see. They start to beat somebody up over here. And then I jump through the barricades that I climb. I climb into the, the course with about five minutes to spare. And uh, I'm pretty sure, uh, I mean, it, it, it was a miracle that I got back on. And I'm there <laughs> and uh, I'm freaking out. Everyone's t- giving advice. I'm arguing with people because I think I know what's going to happen. No- nobody knows what's going to happen. Most of it's tourists. And, uh, and so... They release us. We, we walk down to the curve and I start thinking like, I'm going to run the curve because at least I know what it is and I want to see the bulls hit the wall. So I'm standing there. And for some reason, like this couple from like California has like decided that I know what I'm doing. And they're like mm. following me. They're like, they're like standing with me. And I'm like, wait, wait, I don't, I don't, this is my first time. I don't know. Like, like the, 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 the rocket goes up and uh, the bulls come like, they come around. I, I'm standing on, on Estafeta, like after the curve. So the bulls are coming like down the curve. You can hear them rumbling, like the whole, the whole ground and everything is just like rumbling and, sh- and, and shaking. And suddenly they just appear, the first bull. And it's like slow motion. Mm. All I see is a guy that's been like butted and he's flying airborne ahead of the first bull like this. And he hits the wall, crumbles. The bulls hit the wall. They fall. And I'm watching this. And uh, the bulls get up and they start running. And I'm kind of like petrified. I don't know what to do. And in my peripheral vision, I see something big coming towards me. And yeah. I look and there's a giant cabestro, a, a steer with, his, with, with the bell around his neck. And it's coming right for me. And it's about to hit me. And I dive backward and like push my hand along his shoulder so like I don't get trampled. Well, the couple that have been following me around are right in front of me. And the, and the steer literally just tramples them and just gobbles them up and just go, keeps going and uh i like i almost fall on them i, I jump over them and then I'm, I'm like trying to help them like oh my god you guys are really badly hurt and i look up and there's one bull left and this mm-hmm. black bull and it, it, you know you you think like in the pictures i wasn't very close obviously but for me at that moment it felt like he was like next to me and he was gonna kill me and and he he he's all alone. I know that a lone bull is, is dangerous, so I'm starting to freak out. And and he just comes flying in my direction. I think he's coming for me, and I just run. And and, and the bull luckily like just blows past me. And uh, and then I had remembered at the end is uh they they release uh like ba- I thought it was baby bulls, but it's Bakia. They release into the ring after the run. So I start trying to run to the arena because I want to be part of that. And I'm getting close, getting close. And all of a sudden, they're trying to close the gates, the doors to the tunnel, and everyone's trying to push in. And I just run up and like smash into the back of the guy in front of me, and we fall in. And then they shut the doors, and then wow. we're in. So, so we're in, and uh, and I go down and I get in the ring, and everyone's like celebrating, and and everyone's just pandemonium and chaos, and trying to like tell people what you saw or like what happened. And they're like telling you, it's just it's total nonsense, insanity. And then they release the the vaquilla. And uh, and I, you know, got involved in that and uh, almost got hit by a vaquilla. It, it, it was it was great. I mean, it was it was insane. Uh, when I finished it, I was just so high on, on like the adrenaline and the experience. And uh, I just remember just like walking around, like screaming out, like enjoy, like excitement. Like I was just it was it was life changing for me. And uh, mm-hmm. I've, I've been coming back ever since.
It's funny you say that, like the Vakia, when, when I went for the first time in 2015, and I saw you, but I didn't meet you there because you just popped over to where I was doing an interview, actually, and were very polite not to interrupt the, the conversation, but just sort of said hello to, to Alexander Fisk Harrison briefly, and then you disappeared. And Alexander gave me this background of you, and for people who don't know, Ale Alexander has written some books on bullfighting, uh, became an amateur bullfighter, and, and written many articles, and, and like Bill, is a go-to person for a lot of the media to try to understand what the hell is going on for people that aren't acquainted. Um, a, a couple points I just wanted for people who don't understand the running of the bulls, not that I'm an expert, but the bull that was chasing Bill, some of these bulls can go 25% faster than Usain Bolt breaking the world record. They can go 40 miles an hour. So when you're saying that you see something behind you and it doesn't seem that far away, I've only done it once. You've done it hundreds of times. But when you look back and first see these fucking animals coming at you like the Indiana Jones bowling ball in Raiders of the Lost Ark, when you look to see it and you look ahead, if they don't hit you, and they've hit Bill, and I want to hear about that, but they fly past you where you can't even see them. Like they go from, oh my God, it's behind me, to it's gone in front of me where it's not visible. They're that fast when you're going full speed and... I'm not saying I'm Usain Bolt, but I played a running back in high school. I'm not slow in a sprint, but I could not believe how fast these fucking things are. They're 1,100 pounds, and they're going 40 miles an hour. And what you're describing, I didn't know that that stage existed, that after you finish the course, you get into the, the Pamplona bullring. You've got whatever it is, 15,000 people. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You've got 15,000 people who are so loud that seven brass bands that are up there, you can't even hear the brass bands that sound like fucking Hannibal's elephants are just blasting. You can't hear any of it over the cheers and the euphoria and the joy. And then for half an hour, if you've done the run, you're getting chased around by these smaller bulls, the vaquilla that you were saying, um, and people are doing... Uh, somersaults in the air over them. They're trying to dazzle everybody with like a circus show almost of yeah. ag agility and that kind of thing. But but it itself was really dangerous too. Oh yeah, yeah um, yeah. You can get I mean, a guy got paralyzed in there a couple years ago. It's no joke. Like I mean, it's their their horns are are sort of wrapped, so they're not going to impale you, but they can still run into you. And and as they escalate in size every few minutes, they get pretty big. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, they're huge. Yeah. So how how did the intensity of running with the bulls and basically having death be right behind you <laughs> um, compare with the feeling of, of your amateur boxing career, like getting getting hit? I don't know if you ever were knocked down or, or knocked out, but the fear of getting hit, knocked down, humiliated versus uh, six bulls chasing you. That's a combined, what, 6,000 pounds, 7,000 pounds. What? Were you prepared in any way? Did boxing help you feel prepared in any way for that kind of fear? Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a, a similar feeling uh, that falls onto the streets in Pamplona. Uh, the same kind of feeling you get when you know you got about five minutes left before you enter the ring. There's the mm -hmm. same sort of uh, tense fear, the questioning, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why am I putting myself in this situation? Why don't I just like... <laughs> Why don't I just go on and be like a normal person <laughs> and not do this? 
but uh yeah i mean it's uh it's the same type of tense fear because I mean, you know, not that many people die in amateur boxing, but you can definitely die in a, in an amateur boxing bout if you get sure. caught just died and you you know you get aneurysm, you could die. So it's there is a fear of like death, there's a fear of serious injury, there's a fear of uh, you know, it's a very similar similar thing, and and there's also that whole sense of like that you're you're sort of alone in the run, like even though you're with a lot of people there's a real feeling that you're you're very much like alone and you're gonna have to survive this on your own and the same way you you kind of feel going into the ring uh that you're you even though you got your trainer you got people that help you you're alone and um there's something like very uh very sort of invigorating about that and also you know a lot of fear and 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 questioning yourself um at the same time um you know i would say you know when you're in the zone as a runner and you're able to sort of uh, cope with the, 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 the chaos and you're able to run well and, and lead a bull, connect with a bull and able to lead it up the street, there is a, it is a similar sensation of like exchanging punches, you know, like, mm-hmm. like let's say you, you're in the ring and, and you're in there with a guy that, you're, that you know is really good, maybe better than you or, or you're not sure if you can beat them and you're, you're just boom, boom, just exchanging punches and, and the punches are flying. And sometimes you're you're able to sort of you know dip them and maybe counter the guy or or, or when you start to get into that like like mode of uh that that you're doing what you want to do you're in control and you're able to to impose what you want on that guy the flow the same, yeah yeah you get into your rhythm you get into a gear you're starting to catch him you know what he wants to do and you're able to anticipate it bang 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 and yep. and, and and everything starts to go your way and you got a guy hurt. You know, and, and the guy's reeling suddenly, and and all of a sudden now you know you got a chance now to stop him, and and you're you're flying there with the shots. You know, you're, you're trying to stay composed, but you're also trying to use that excited energy. It's the same kind of thing, like, like when you're running with the bulls. So a lot of times you are actually getting hit by people. You're getting pushed. You're getting pulled. There's a lot of chaos happening around you, especially yeah. right when the bulls are getting close. And it's kind of like being in the middle of an exchange. Where a guy's trying to knock you out, and you you gotta you gotta sort of react properly and keep balance, and a lot of it is balance, and, and in boxing balance is huge too. So you're sort of trying to like lower your center of gravity and and sort of follow your the center of the street and sort of weed through the bodies, and and deal with the, the chaos of people pulling you, hitting you. You're 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 sort of, and if you can get that tunnel vision of what you want to do, which is just get that center line. And then, because at some point, the, the chaos stops. Sometimes, yeah. as you're getting hit, pull, pull, and then it stops. And you can feel them behind you. You hear them rumbling. Now you know, like, okay, it's on here. You don't even have to look back, because you know you can feel the sensation. There's like a, like a gravitational sensation when the bulls are watching you and looking at you and, and sort of, like, linking with you. Yeah. And so when that happens, it just feels like, okay, I got the guy hurt. I know I have to stop him. And you just you're just trying to dig and trying to find a way to break the wheel and and in there you're just trying to like find that line and hold it and then you might take a look and get a feel for where the bull is and if he's there you can kind of start to adjust and you you know if you have to get like maybe there's a steer out front and you want to get alongside the steer to get to the bull that's back here so it's you start to get this like this like very slow motiony kind of tunnel vision that that you you can start to control everything right and and when that's happening. You just, it's the greatest thing for a bull runner. The greatest sensation, you know. Cool. Uh, 
and it's just like stopping a guy in a big fight and, you know, in the Golden Gloves or something. I mean, it's it's what we all dream about. You know, we all hope for when we get in the ring or when we step on the street to run with the bulls that, that you can turn that all that chaos into some some like beautiful, artful, you know, pinnacle moment. And it, it's very similar to share. Well, and I, and I want to ask you, because I, I've only done it the once. I didn't go there intending to do it. I, I went there wanting to talk to people like you who do do it. And, and um, I was forced to do it because Alexander, who I was interviewing, said, I'm only going to talk to you if you go out and experience it. So meet me out there. Here's what my jacket looks like. I'm at the very back. You're not going to start up at the front and say you did it unless the bulls really passed you. You've got mm-hmm. to actually do the real thing. And I was like, oh, God, like, this is not what I'm here to do. But OK, so I go out and do it. Now, when people are like, I've mentioned it to that I've done it. They're like, what what does it feel like? And I feel like I don't know, because when I turned around and saw them, they then blew past me. So I just got lucky. Yeah. And then you're in mm-hmm. the ring and. Every time one of those animals looked at me and I thought I'd like to be chased by it, I thought, no, I don't. I don't yeah, want to be yeah. chased in it after. But to, to have gone through what you did, I think, let me just double check because I had it in my notes. You started going since 2005. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That was your first yeah. run in San Fermin. But in 2014, you got seriously gored at San Fermin twice. Yeah. So exactly. I wonder, I mean, similar to a boxer who's been knocked out cold, a lot of people say mm. they can never come back. Psychologically, mm. they're just timid. They're just not the same person anymore. Yeah. Had you been gored prior to that? No. No, so, that was my first time. So let me hear about that day. You've been successful. I don't know. How many times did you run with the Bulls at, at that point in total, maybe? Maybe like like 80 Jesus Christ. Okay. (laughs) So one of these July, beautiful July days in Pamplona in 2014, well, July 9th, 2014, I have have a notes. You show up on the course that day Uh, and what, what happens? You know, uh, I'm big on, I'm really spooky. I'm big on premonitions and things like that. So, uh, I've had some premonitions, really weird ones that came true in, in the run. And, uh, so but this this morning was pretty. The night was okay. I had kind of like a bad night, but usually I have bad nights uh, when the, when the run is on. But uh, when I was getting warmed up, I was I was just kind of jogging and lo- loosening up, and I was looking down and and running, and I was praying. I'm a Buddhist. So I was doing uh, my chants, Nam Myoho Rengekyo, and I start. I'm looking down as I'm doing it and, and jogging, and all of a sudden I see like a little droplet of blood on the ground and then a couple like a foot later i see another one and then a foot later i see another one and they start getting bigger and bigger and bigger until i see like a like a big pool of blood mm. and uh i'm like that's that's a bad premonition yeah i have a really really bad like that's like something bad is gonna happen then i'm like no 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 it's not nothing just stop it you're fine just go run everything's gonna be fine so uh I get out there and uh, pretty normal day. I was running kind of bad that year because I was really focused. My book had just come out and I was I was distracted. I wasn't running good, but uh, the 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 herd kind of blew past me. And uh, afterwards, there was a swelter. I saw I saw there was a swelter coming up the street, and uh, 
I have a lot of experience running with Suelto, so I, it's, it's for me, it's, I feel real comfortable running with them. And that's when the bulls separated from the, the herd, and they just they start getting real combative and just trying to gore everybody. And then the really good runners, they sort of attract the bull and try to lead it up the street in a controlled way. And the, if the bull gores somebody, they run up and grab the tail of the bull and pull, get him to stop. And so uh, I've been doing that a lot with, with these great runners like David Rodriguez and Miguel Angel Perez, these, these great Spanish runners that I've befriended over the years and learned from. And so as the bull approached, uh, those two runners, uh, Miguel Angel Perez and David Rodriguez, were leading it as normal. They usually are the ones that lead the sueltos. And I just got up beside them, and us three, we started leading uh, the bull. So we're just we're leading it like in this formation, and I'm, I'm off to the right. David's in the center, and Miguel's on the other side. And we're leading the bull perfectly, and it's great. Everything's beautiful. I'm so happy. I'm like, thank God I'm getting a good run finally. It's the, it's the, uh, the third run. I'm, I'm psyched. And uh, I got my hand out. Usually what you do when you're leading the sueltos is you, you have your paper like, like to the bull so to attract, their, attract them to, to you, and then you put your, your other hand out behind you, and you watch the bull, and you put your hand out behind you. And usually people give you a lot of space, you know, because they're afraid. And, and if they're a good runner, they're going to give you space and try to help you and maybe like behind you or, or sliding next to you or something, but they're not going to get in your way. Well, some guy starts screaming and like smashes my hand and I'm like, whoa, whoa. Right. And I look back and he's screaming and acting crazy. I'm like, damn, you know, like, OK. And I'm, I'm, I'm leading this bull. Would you give me a little space, you know? And, 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 and we're leading the bull, leading the bull. And then suddenly the bull kind of charges. And I run and I'm looking back at him and there's a group of guys that are like refusing to run. They're just like they're afraid. They're petrified. They're just standing there holding each other like freaked out. And I crash yeah. into them. And when I do that, the bull sees the like the action and starts coming towards us. And I'm trying to push through them. And, uh, you know, all they had to do was just run away and everything would have been OK. But they just were holding their ground. And I'm trying to push through them. And then a guy, one of them, you know, out of fear, not not intentionally trying to hurt me. Uh, just just reacting, just sort of like pushed me as hard as he could and ran across the street and he he tackled another guy that was leading the bull. And uh, when he pushed me, I, I kind of went straight back and fell right on my back. And uh, another guy that was with him, they're all wearing the same shirts. They're from England. He oh. fell on my chest and, and the bull was coming in at that point. I could just see the bull like sort of closing in slow motion, his yeah, horn sort of twisting, kind of like twisting in to get me. Yeah, I am me. I am me. And uh, it's crazy because the horn actually hit me in the balls. And, uh, oh, yeah. But because the guy had landed on my chest, my knee like as like a just like a knee jerk reaction, like a just, you know, how if you get hit, sometimes you, your body will react in weird ways. Well, my knee popped up. And when he saw my knee popped up, he sort of hit, hit the horn, hit my balls and then yeah. and then turned up and he got me in the leg and picked me up and uh so i just kind of got picked up straight from you see there's a really funny picture of me grabbing my balls with both my hands oh. and, and while the bull was goring me and lifting me up and my oh. first thought was like thank god it's not my balls i want to have kids one day <laughs> true and uh so he picks me up he his leg is hurt he'd already fallen and his leg had uh he was injured so he fell when he did it and i fell off the horn and I fell under the barricade. My head was like right by the barricade. So I just grabbed the barricades and I started to pull myself under. And as I did it, he mm. stood again and he gored me under the knee. 
And he looked at me right in the eyes. And he went like, like they make these noises like that. Yeah. And when he did it, I could feel his horn like resonating in my leg, like like vibrating <laughs> in my leg. And he could have drugged me out. He could have drugged me right back out, thrown me around, gored me, maybe killed me. But uh, he he just like in one instant he just decided to let me live and just, just he just vanished. Wow. Huh. And I mean you. I mean it's funny because. The book that you wrote that was published that year was Fiesta, How to Survive the Bulls of Pamplona. Yeah. And then this happens post. I mean, did you forget to knock on wood or something with a title like that? <laughs> given, No, you know what? It almost was a disaster, like a true disaster. I mean, you know, animal rights activists, the media, they played around with that idea, but... I don't buy. I don't get. I don't buy. I don't buy into that. I think it's silly to to because because actually, if I would have if I wouldn't have followed my my own advice, if the first mm. thing I could have done was just stand right up as soon as he gored me, and yeah. that's what most people do. They just stand up because they that's the reaction when you get knocked down. Well, if I would have stood up or even sat up, he would have gored me in the vitals and probably might have killed yeah. me. Absolutely. So my like the first rule in bull running, the most important rule, the only rule is if you fall down, stay down. So I followed that rule, and I didn't get gored in the vials. I got gored again. I got gored in the leg, but, but I probably saved myself. Oh, no, no. I, I, and I didn't, I, I was not trying to impugn the merit of your book. What I meant in the sense of is that prior to that day, you'd never been gored. So it's like how to survive. Yeah, you've successfully never been gored, but now you are surviving an actual gore yeah. that almost killed yeah. you. It's just a, a title where I just went, oh, dear God, like, oh, yeah. But you know what's funny yeah. is that, that and, they were and, gonna they yeah. were gonna change the title at the last second in this book when it was coming out. They're gonna change the title to "How Not to Get Gored in Pamplona." Mm, and I said, I said, no fucking way, like, no way on earth will I be part of a book like that because I'd almost been gored like twelve times before I actually got gored. Like, I knew I would get gored. Right. It was just a matter of when, you know. So. Like that, yeah. that it was, it really, it was, it was close though. If, we, if they would have gone through with that, that would have been really bad. But well, and and I mean, I'm sure you were probably there that day because you were you were running that I went. But that night, I remember going to the bullring in Pamplona. Uh, to to I found a sculptor who was selling tickets, and the first bullfighter who came out was this guy. For I don't expect many boxing people are like intimately familiar with the intricacies of bullfighting. But one of the most famous bullfighters, his name is El Padilla. There's a wonderful profile of him in GQ magazine. Padilla means the pirate. He is called that because he does wear a patch and he lost his eye by literally having a horn go through the side of his skull and like a toothpick through an olive, just separate him from his eyeball. And that removed him from stereoscopic vision, and somehow or other, he came back and became a better bullfighter with one eye than he was with two, according to a lot of experts. And I'd never seen him fight before. I've probably seen about 50 bullfights in my life. Um, when I was climbing the stairs of, of Pamplona's bullring, and I stepped into, I got to the upper level, I had bad seats. When I walked in, Padilla had just walked onto the sand and the crowd was so loud that I thought I was almost going to pass out from feeling the intensity of their roar of yeah. appreciation for him with 
maybe thousands of pirate flags waving around. Again, all these brass bands everywhere. You couldn't hear anything. I mean, I thought I was going to go deaf with how loud it was. I don't think I've ever in my life felt like this fire hose of joy the way I did, like walking into that spectacle. And, and the fight hadn't even started. Like it was just a guy walking out into the sand to yeah. sort of say like, you know, like, like football players running into the stadium kind of moment. I just thought, yeah. you know, I've never tried to defend bullfighting. I've never tried to say, if you don't like it, you should. And, uh-huh. and if you don't get it, I don't know that you ever will get it any more than trying to defend opera to somebody who says this is the worst music in the world. Like, you know, it's, it's there in you or it's not. But mm-hmm. I don't, I've never seen a sporting event or, or any event that created that kind of energy in my life that what Pamplona had. And, I, and again, I've only been to a few bullfights in Pamplona, just that, that one San Fermin in 2015. But is that a standard thing f- for you during the festival that is it the most intensity you've ever felt in your life in terms of what the people are creating? Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, super intense. It's incredible. I think that may have been the year that that after his goring, uh, oh. that that he came back to Pamplona. That was, I think, that might have been his first year back after the goring. And so that, that I was, was there that day. Huh. Yeah, I was there that day too. So, so Padilla is uh is so beloved in Pamplona. You know, I put it this way: I've seen him get gored. I saw him get gored so bad, get spun around by the bull over the bull's horn, knocked unconscious. They picked him up. <laughs> they picked up his unconscious body, <laughs> carried him to the infirmary, okay? We all thought, like, maybe he's dead. Like, like it was horrible. The other bullfighter starts to get ready to t- to kill his bull for him because that's the that's the process. If once the bullfighter can't fight, then the next bullfighter comes to do it. Yeah. Now, suddenly, suddenly, his managers run out for, of the of the infirmary and start saying, "Don't do it! Don't do it!" Because once the other bullfighter starts, then then he has to finish. So that yeah. the bullfighter sees him and says, "What? Okay," and he goes away. The whole crowd starts freaking out. They're like, "Ooh!" Oh. Two or three minutes later, Padilla walks out of the infirmary in blue jeans. In blue jeans. No. Because he's been gored, severely gored in the leg, like oh. maybe more than once. Oh. He comes out in blue jeans, and he just sits down on the, on the ledge of, inside the ring. They have like a little ledge for you to step on and jump over. He sits yeah. down on the ledge, and he's just like staring at the bull. And everyone is just going crazy. They can't believe wow. he came back from this. Comes out, kills that bull. Comes back again, kills the next bull at the towards the end of the of the bullfight. And uh, so th- so those are the kind of like that's the kind of love and an absolute adoration the people of Pamplona have for Padilla. So after his goring, we all thought he was done. It was it was, it was over. And then he comes back, and I think that was in 2015 was the first year they came back. I'm not sure, but uh, he comes back to the place where he sort of made himself and, mm. and to the place where he's the most loved in all of Spain. And mm. uh, so you got to see that moment, that super historic moment of him returning, the, the beloved bullfighter of San Fermin returning. Oh. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, total, I was there too. It was, it was sensational. It was, it was really amazing. 
I've never seen anything like it. I mean, it's hard to try to frame like who he would be if you were comparing him to another athlete because he's he's the antithesis of what makes most bullfighters great in the sense that most of them are, you know, Jose Tomas, you'd be like, he's a great artist. He's a great maestro. Yeah. Padilla is kind of clumsy. He's kind of awkward. He's large. He's more like a Tex Cobb. I mean, he's not anywhere close yeah, to yeah. like a, a large heavyweight, but like a beloved grinder of a guy. Yeah. Like he's not yeah. elegant. He's just so gutsy. Like you're describing, like that's so him to come out in blue jeans and kill a bull and just be like, I'm not letting somebody else steal my glory. Fuck you. I'm yeah, marching yeah, yeah. in there and doing it. He, I've never seen anybody, I mean, almost like an Arturo Gaddy where Gaddy is fighting a Floyd Mayweather where it's like, you have no business technically getting in there. Yeah, but yeah. What you're doing is so inspiring and brave and ballsy. It wins people over that much more. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, it's, it's just pure blood and guts warrior like Gotti yeah. or, uh, you know, maybe like a Johnny, a Johnny Tapia where it's just like. Oh, that's like, a good God, one. That's a perfect one. That's a perfect no. one, Tapia. Just pure spirit, pure heart, pure like. He would look into the crowd and be like, like he loved us. He loved San Fermin. He loved the people of San Fermin. And, and like, like you, if you're sitting Padilla and like genuinely loved them, loved uh, you know, the 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 soul set San Fermin bullfighter. I mean, there's never gonna be anyone that comes close to it. And I was there when he for his last his last fight. I got to meet him. He's, he's super nice, was like hmm. just friendly, cool guy. Uh, I was there in his in his last his last bullfight in San Fermin, and like he was trying to like pass the torch to this to this young bullfighter, Rocker Ray. And the the fights were sensational that night. I mean, it was it was what the the most beautiful career I've ever seen. Uh, it, the 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 kills were spectacular. Everyone was getting. You know, ears and tail. It was just like it was. It was couldn't have been more poetic and beautiful. Um, so yeah, I mean, you you really can't you can't understand San Fermin without sort of having that like Padilla like like memory. Like for the past like decade, San Fermin was defined by you know Vanciero and Padilla, and and you know the 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 certain ranches like the the Handia and the Sabaragago. And Padilla and 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 all of it. I mean, it. He's he was the spiritual sort of like center of of, of Fiesta in a lot of ways. Hmm. I can you indulge me? I I was I went to Mexico City four years ago to see Jose Tomas show up, and I think he made a million dollars to show up. Refuses cameras to film him. How many times have you seen Tomas fight? I've never seen him, you know. I've never seen him. Uh -huh. I'm not like uh, I'm not like a true aficionado of La Corrida. I, I I love it. I go, uh, but you know that whole realm is just a it's just a different vibe for me. Um, you know, you have to truly understand it. Like like guys like uh, Alexander Fitz Harrison completely are are very deep in it and understand it and, and and get a lot out of it. And I've learned a lot from him about the the bullfight. But uh, for me. Uh, I'm not. I'm not the kind of guy that's gonna, you know, fly to Madrid to see Jose Tomas or something like that. You know, I, I, I just, I'm not that wrapped up in it. 
I love yeah. it. Uh, it. It's super. Uh, it, like all like the, the death of an animal, a beautiful animal that I love so much. is super like potent for me. And sometimes I want to cry. Sometimes I, I leave there like feeling like like exhausted emotionally. And you know, it's it's. But at the same time, I think it's super important to go um, to to experience that. So you truly you truly understand like that. You know. Eating meat and like part of what it means to be human is to eat meat and and being part of that process is important that you're very in touch with it and and to to watch an animal that you love or maybe that you even ran with to die in that way it's super poetic and and powerful um, but like I said I'm I'm not a I'm not a huge uh, aficionado of La Corrida and I I've never seen Tomas I would love to though but uh, but I haven't well, yet and I think like one of the things that that Fisk Harrison said that I thought was a clever kind of analog a little bit to people who look at, at aficionados or just, just people who feel like are tapped into what bullfighting offers as an art form. Um, he said that I, th I think the number is he's closing in on 60 billion animals are, are killed every year for our meat consumption globally. Yeah. It's something like yeah. 56 billion animals. Most of those animals are born to be eaten. They're caged. You know, it's it's really grotesque and disgusting and indefensible um, treatment. Like nobody would want to see like how the sausage is made with mm -hmm. this kind of stuff. And none of us have to eat meat to survive. So mm -hmm. what he said was that we need to. We're doing it for the pleasure of our taste buds' satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And bullfighting people, we're saying there's aesthetic value to what we're watching with death. And are your taste buds a better justification than your aesthetic sensibilities of appreciating yeah, yeah. the meaning of death, et cetera, et cetera? Like, they're both kind of indefensible from many right. perspectives, but I thought that was a very interesting way to put it when you think of, mm -hmm. you know, 60 billion animals just yeah. being bred to be slaughtered. You go, Mike, yeah. what a species we are. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is how we treat the planet. Yeah. Um, and, and so you come out with your book, um, How to Survive the Bulls of Pamplona, with Alexander Fisk Harrison and John Hemingway. So you get connected to that Hemingway bloodline. John is Hemingway's grandson through Hemingway's third son, Gregory. What was it like for you to tap into, I mean, I met some of them in 2015, um, kind of the offspring of The Sun Also Rises. Some of those veterans who were there or veteran observers um, were connected to, I think, when Hemingway was last there in 59, I believe, was his last visit to Pamplona. Um, so what was it like to sort of meet those people and get into that inner crowd that had been shaped by, I mean, Hemingway was going there, I think, the first time was 1920 or 1921? Yeah, 22, I think. I think 22, 22, when I think there was like five foreigners who were there, like, like yeah. he kind of made it and from a lot of people's perspective kind of ruined what San Fermin was, at least in spirit, in terms of being on ESPN2 and it becoming this big yeah. spectacle that was not, I think, what it was intended to be from, from a certain perspective, maybe a rigid perspective. Um, so I just wonder what it was like to sort of connect with Hemingway in that way. I mean, you're connecting with his blood with John Hemingway. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know if you know the whole story. It's, uh, it's actually pretty funny. Uh, so... The, when I first met uh, John, he was there as a judge for the Hemingway Lookalike Contest. Uh, this is back in like 2009-ish uh, <laughs> or something like uh -huh. that. 
And uh, so I sit down. My friends kind of invited me out to go see go see this. And uh, I sit down next to like a you know quiet nice guy and uh, and like five different Hemingways who are all like bickering about who's the better Hemingway and like pretending to be Hemingway and stuff. It's really bizarre. Yeah. And we're kind of like laughing, laughing, and ch- chit chatting. And uh, I start to really get to have a good conversation with the guy sitting next to me. He just seems like a friendly guy, an interesting guy. And then he introduces himself as John Hemingway. And uh, we never really looked back. Uh, we, we became really good friends. Uh, I brought him out to Chicago for a literary event. And, uh, you know, we, 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 we traveled. We went to Europe together. We went to, uh, to, to Scotland together for another event and stuff. So we did a lot of, we, we really got close. And um, then he started bringing his son, Michael Hemingway, out. And uh, Michael was like a, a high school kid, budding photographer. And uh, I was covering a run for Outside Magazine. And uh, Michael had this really cool video of uh, Chupanatsu, the opening ceremony, and a couple photos and stuff. And I said, I pitched, you know, outside. I was like, hey, look, we got Michael Hemingway sort of seeing Fiesta for the first time. You know, this, this great grandson of Ernest. Uh, so you guys want to publish it? They published it. Uh, and, and he started shooting photos for SanFermin.com later on of the hmm. hero. And uh, so... It just so happened, uh, we, you know, we became friends, too. We just, you know, it was, it was a nice, you know, friend thing. We kept, we always hang out during Fiesta. And uh, when I got gored uh, in 2014, um, I'm, I'm, I think I'm dying, right? I'm bleeding. Like, I have a hose of blood coming out of my leg. And uh, I think it's the artery because there's so much blood. And I can't see it. I can't see if it's bright or dark. I don't know. Uh, and, and suddenly, uh, the hole is like, is like this big. It's just, my whole leg is like my, the muscle in my leg is like deformed. It looked like I had like a, like a pineapple, like jammed in my leg. And the opening is just this, this gory, you know, hole that just was endless. It looked like it went straight through my leg. And, uh, and, and, and suddenly I hear somebody go, Bill, and I turn. And it's Michael Hemingway, and he and he's he'd been photographing Telefonica, and he saw he just happened to see me. Wow! And he looks at me, and I go, Michael. And he looks at me, then he looks into the hole of my leg, and he almost throws up. He's like, oh, ah. And he's like, he, he's not like a big burly Hemingway. He's kind of like at the time he's kind of like a geeky like like high school kid, you know, from yep. Canada. Mm-hmm. And he looks into the hole, and he goes. My God, Bill, you've been gored. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, like, yeah, I got gored, man. Come here. And he 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 comes over and he he kneels down. He takes my hand, like a, like a real Hemingway would, you know, like like Ernest probably would have. He takes my hand, he kneels down with me, and the medic is working on me. And uh, and I say, and I my Spanish wasn't very good then, and I and I I need some info if I'm dying or not, you know. And I and I tell Michael like. <sighs> Michael, can you can you ask him if it's the artery? And, and Michael's like, yes, yes. He asks him in Spanish. The medic literally takes his hand and puts it into my hole, the hole, and I don't feel it because I'm still in shock. And yeah. uh, he feels my artery, and he says, "No, I can feel the artery. It's 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 intact. You're you're okay. You're gonna live." And Michael Jeez. Michael tells me, he says, "Bill, he says he can feel the artery. You're gonna live." <laughs> and so that's how I got that very important information from Ernest's wow. great grandson, uh, Michael Hemingway, <laughs> who's a great kid, just, just in a talented photographer, to be honest. I mean, he's, he's, he's a great guy. But and this, uh, 
And this went, this went, your goring was a really big deal in terms of international news. I mean, when Pamplona is going on, there's a lot of attention on people who get gored. I mean, people think that, that a lot of people are getting gored all the time. There's not a lot of serious gorings over the course mm -hmm. of most festivals. It happens. Rarely people die. But yours was a novel big deal that I think made headlines yeah. around the world and was, you know, being yeah. broadcast on, on all the news coverage that's there. I mean... There's a huge amount of media that descends on Pamplona during it. So, like, were you kind of, was it kind of heady to go from, you're recovering from having a doctor reaching, or a paramedic reaching in to feel that your arteries intact and aren't kill, are about to die, to everybody probably wants to talk to you about being an American gourd in the most famous bullfighting festival in the world? <laughs> I mean, it was it was super surreal, man. To be honest, uh, at first the news was really good because because uh, you know first it started Alexander was 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 kind of like reaching out to his contacts in the media and controlling the the articles for the most part and and they were positive, you know, they were they were interesting positive stories. But mm -hmm. then uh, you know most people in the media are super liberal, uh, you know they they don't like bullfighting. A lot of them are animal rights activists, so it, it, they when they started picking up on it. They started trying to look for the joke and look for the funny part. And so they right. say like that it's ironic that I got gored because I wrote a survival guide. So oh, I see. that yeah. that when when then the you know a lot of animal rights pack activists are super active on 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 the internet. So they started commenting. It it, it went super viral. These stories went absolutely crazy around the world. Like the numbers are outrageous. They they were it was like the number one news story in the world that week was was hmm. my goring and how it was funny that i got gored and so oh i see from, yeah you know and i started getting death threats and, and animal rights activists were writing personal emails saying i hope you die and like it got really creepy and uh and i was like started fighting with them you know like online and i'm like i'm like, I'm like in my hospital bed like like on in a serious serious medical condition i mean i, I could have died from the infection for sure and i'm fighting with these people i lied you know and uh, so, but eventually I realized, like, I was getting sicker from all the negativity, you know, I could feel myself getting sicker and I felt like I was going to die. And uh, so I just, I just decided to just forgive them and just, I just started praying for them as a Buddhist. I started praying for, for them, for their happiness, that they just, that they stopped being so negative and, and, and attacking people like me. And uh, then things started changing. Things started changing really fast. Like I had lost my... I lost my Buddhist talisman and my computer with a draft of my memoir on it that I didn't have backed up and wow. my passport and my medication for bipolar disorder. Oy. And uh, because of the goring, I told everybody about that and in, in the media and it got out and they found my bag at one of the lost and founds and brought it to me. Wow. And, and so I started praying more. I started praying. I could barely stay. I could barely move. And I got out of my bed to pray to my, with my talisman and everything. And, uh, a couple, like an hour later, uh, the Washington Post requested a op-ed uh, that was uh, for their Outlook section, which is published all over the world, um, in like the Toronto Star, the LA Times, and Daily Mail, and, and all these different outlets. So I was able to write basically everything I wanted to say about the running of the Bulls at that point in my life, and it was it was super amazing. I got to include a lot of the great Spanish runners that inspired me and that I look up to. Um, I got to talk about exactly what happened, and it was it was amazing. And uh, then I started getting calls from like NPR, the Today Show. Uh, you know, some people were doing hit pieces on me. Still, like the CNN did a horrible hit piece on me. They like convinced me to talk to them, and then just just totally 
just went right after me. Uh, then, but but I kept I kept doing the interviews and talking to people, and little by little I started to win them over, you know. And I'm actually doing a linguistics uh, paper and probably a whole whole project about linguistics uh, about how I was able to to actually engage the 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 negative like comments and the negative sort of out, uh, media and mm-hmm. defeat it. And I was able to defeat it uh, through like simple things, you know, like when the NPR person asked me what happened. I right away said suelto. I, I was running with a suelto. Like, wait, 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 what's a suelto? And then right away, I'm just giving them like a, a little lesson about bull running and bulls and, and, and bull behavior. And, and, and so, I mean, it was, I was just able to just grab the conversation and completely take control of it. And, and by the end of the summer, TNN did a follow-up piece that was really positive. And, you know, it was just, a, it was a surreal sort of journey, but uh, I, you know, it was, it was amazing in the end. It, it, it all worked out. And the following year, 2016, you ran over 200 times uh, in different towns all over Spain. 200 times. Yeah, yeah. So I, I set out. I really didn't know. I mean, that's the one thing. Is like a lot of people that are not from the culture pretend like they know everything about the culture. And me, I, I don't. I just say, I want to find out. I want to, I mean, I want to learn. So I, I just said, I'm going to go out and try to run 101 bull runs in the summer. I don't know if I can. I have no idea what's possible. I'm just going to go do it. And uh, it, hopefully my Spanish friends are going to help me and they're going to, they're going to sort of work with me and, and, and figure it out and help and we'll get it done. And um, so I went out there and uh, right away found that there was way more out there than I ever thought. Uh, hmm. And, and there's different forms of it too. There's not just like, like, uh, and in Sierra, is, is a particular form, usually it's, it's six bulls and, and, and a pack of steers that are running. Um, but there's other forms of, of running with the bulls. And, and those are, there's ones called like arrestes bravas. That's, that's where they release a bull into the street for, for like 15 minutes. And then they release another one and another one. And then in the end, they run all the bulls all through the street. And then there's another one called an espantes. Where uh, they 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 run a they, they have a bunch of horsemen will run with the bulls like through a big field, and then they'll try to run into town, and the people will actually block the the entrance to town and not let the bulls in, and and the bulls will get scared. They'll charge at the people, and at the end they'll see all the people, and then they divert and try to run away. And then wow. there, there, there's there's other forms of encierros too. I mean, it, I I learned so much that summer. And uh, I was blown away by how many runs there were. There's a, there's a huge amount of runs in September that I didn't know about. I was able to run one in, in Valladolid. That's this, uh, this town in sort of uh, north, uh, northwestern Spain. There's, a, there's a, the zone of Valladolid around that, that city. There's, a, there's a, a couple weeks where they run bulls in like 30 different towns at different times of the day. And they schedule them so you can go from one town to the next, to the next, to the next almost for like 24 hours a day. So in one day, I was able to run like 27 runs in one day, one night, actually. Wow. What's, a, what's next for you? What do you, I mean, you've, it seems like you've tested your luck a fair bit with this running of the bulls. Um, you're, you know, you've published, what, f- three books now? Um, the Old Neighborhood, like a novel. Um, a decade running with the bulls of Spain that came out in 2015. 
where where do you want to are you still looking forward to are you headed to San Fermin this year if the coronavirus sort of <laughs> retracts yeah. a little bit? I mean, I already ran with the Bulls this year. I went out to Ciudad Rodrigo last month and uh, and ran in uh, a really famous bull run, great bull run they have over there. Um, I'm 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 headed back. Uh, yeah, for sure this summer. I mean, I I was hoping to spend two months this summer and, and run a bunch of runs and and hang out with my girlfriend and, and just have a great time. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see with coronavirus. I have no idea what's going to happen now. But uh, but yeah, I have another book coming out called The Pueblos that's coming out okay. next year. Um, that's about my summer run with the Bulls and my second going that I that I had in twenty in twenty seventeen. And um, yeah, I mean it's uh. I got another couple novels. I'm turning the old neighborhood into a trilogy, so I got a couple other novels in, coming through as well. And then I'm working on a book actually that, that ties back into boxing. Is for uh, I'm doing a pre- uh, proposal right now for Hamilcar Noir. Um, it's going to be about uh, um, Cleveland Williams, uh, oh, cool. you know, who was who was shot by uh, who was shot in a traffic stop, and and about a, a little over a year later fought Muhammad Ali for the world title. So I'm uh, working that up now. And uh, I just finished one of their books, uh, uh, Berserk by by Don Stradley. Uh, really great read, man. So fascinating about Edwin Valero. Uh, oh, so one of the most incredible stories ever. Oh, tragic and, and so and, tragic. But I mean, I've heard I've heard like the sparring sessions between Valero and Pacquiao was like one of the great moments of boxing that anybody had ever seen. Just Is that so- right? Oh, yeah. Um, a friend of mine who's the editor uh, at Ring Magazine, Brian Hardy. Um, yeah, just they filmed a lot. I've seen a lot of footage that they were filming of Valero. Him and him and Doug Fisher, the editor of Ring, filmed a lot of sparring sessions. And so, like, I think there's one famous one of him knocking a guy out with this incredible combination of, I think, like, uh, like a 2-3 and... Yeah, apparently the Pacquiao, the Pacquiao Valero is one of the great sparring wars ever, ever seen. Oh man, you know he Don doesn't really get into it that much. He kind of says that he's not sure if it really happened or didn't. And then, like uh, Teddy, uh, Freddie Roach uh, says that uh, that Pacquiao handled him or something. But I, yeah, I mean, if, I would love to, to hear somebody that was actually there like describe that man. That that must have been incredible. Like maybe even like the Canelo Golovkin sparring sessions, right? You know? Right, exactly, exactly. Well, thanks so much for this, Bill. This was a real pleasure. I was really interested in just kind of sharing your story and uh, just going from a face that I saw for two seconds and you disappeared. And then uh, I'm, I'm glad to just uh, introduce you, hopefully, to some people who maybe aren't familiar with you or familiar with what you're about or your books and all that. So thanks so much. No, thank you so much, Bryn, man. I'm a big fan of your writing, and, and I've been following your career for a long time, and uh, it's a great opportunity to talk with you, and, and to be part of Ring Magazine is, is a big honor. I've been dreaming of this day for a long, long time, man. Cool, cool. Thanks so much, Bill. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, Thanks for listening.